remember life before Google Maps and Waze? It was so complicated getting somewhere. I can remember driving on road trips, having a map spread out on my lap. Megan's driving and I'm trying to figure out where we're supposed to go next. And I remember growing up in Los Angeles that uh, we had KFWB News 98 and KNX 1070 and they had traffic every 10 minutes and I was constantly listening to find out where the accidents were. And if you were going someplace and you weren't familiar with the roads and you came on an accident or some roadblock or something, you were just pretty much stuck. And if you didn't live back then, you have absolutely no idea how many arguments went something like this. We should stop and ask someone for directions. I don't need directions. I know where we are. And now we have GPS which makes it so much easier and cuts down on at least one of the car fights. But here's the issue, even with GPS, do you trust it? Most of the time it's right, but it has its limitations. Sometimes I try to outsmart it and it doesn't work out really well. Like I've learned that if I'm coming south on I-5 and it wants me to get off in Federal Way and take Pacific Highway, I'm in trouble no matter what I choose to do. Sometimes I think we approach Jesus like that. We look at the Bible, we look at what we know of Jesus, and we think, there's some good information there. But I think my intuition is pretty good too. Or, I've got some life experience that Jesus doesn't have. I don't think Jesus can understand the demands on my life. I'm not always sure about the road that he wants me to get on. So, I'm going to reserve the right to make my own judgments. I'm going to be the ultimate authority in my life. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm a Jesus person, so I'll take a look at what Jesus has to say, but ultimately, I'll make my own choices. Well, here's a fun fact. It doesn't work like that. You are not the final authority in your life. You give authority over your life to someone or something. To give authority to someone or something is to believe what they say about you, about life, about what will bring you meaning and significance and peace and joy. For instance, we give our careers over authority over our lives. We have to have certain characteristics like being outgoing or extroverted, or we have to have certain experiences like attending conferences or parties that we might not normally go to. Or we have to perform at a certain level, like continually winning sales awards. And those things become the most important things in our lives, and we bend our lives to meet those things. Or we give our friend groups or our culture authority over our lives. And here's a weird thing. Every parent knows that your kid will become like the people they hang out with. But we have a harder time seeing that in our own lives, that we become like the people we hang out with. And so our friend group or our culture tells us that you have to think a certain way or look a certain way. You have to go to the right places. You have to have the right vacations. You have to drive the right cars or have certain possessions to feel fulfilled. And I can give tons of examples of stuff like that. But we let the pursuit of those things have authority over our lives. They tell us what we need to be, what we need to do, what we need to look like, what we need to feel, what we need to believe. They tell us whether or not we have value. We think we have all this freedom, but we aren't really free because we've enslaved ourselves to something. So there are a couple of things that I think we need to consider.
is the thing that we've given authority over our lives to leading us to a good place or a bad place. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, where is it leading us? Does it bring us peace or does it bring us anxiety? Is it harming us or is it healing us? Is it building us up or is it tearing us down? And if you know that, you that if you don't show up to a party or a meeting that people will talk badly about you, that's not a healthy situation, whether it's a friend group or a work situation. Is it leading you to a good place or a bad place? Is what it says and emphasizes ultimately true or is it ultimately false? It's false that stuff will make you happy, patently but we refuse to believe it. Our entire economy is built on you believing that the more stuff you buy, the happier you'll be. You give authority in your life to someone or something, and it has consequences. Now into that, I want to read the scripture for the day. It's out of Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So we're starting our new sermon series. Hello, my name is Jesus. We're going to be spending more time in the Gospel of Matthew looking at who Jesus is. And instead of starting at the beginning, we're going to start at the end. Because starting at the end is going to give us a lens to view everything that comes before it through. It's going to give us an answer to the big question of the Gospel of Matthew, which is, who is this man? And so at the end, that question, who is this man, is answered in several ways. Number one, he's Lord. Jesus says all authority is given to him. Now, to make a nice little tie into the Old Testament, that echoes a passage in Daniel chapter 7, verses, verse 14. And Daniel is seen oftentimes as laying out what Israel is looking for in its Messiah. In Daniel 7:14, it says, he was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So people were expecting this type of thing. He's got the authority. It also completes several themes that are in the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 4, 8, during the, the temptation of Jesus, it says, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. So Satan offers Jesus authority over the kingdoms of the world, and Jesus refuses the offer. And then he receives from God far more than Satan could ever offer. The offer of Satan was temporary at best, and it was limited. The offer from God is for forever and includes everything. And this is something that should be considered because it's true 
that Satan has stuff to offer. Sometimes we can benefit from evil. Sometimes good things can happen, but they tend to be temporary because God has so much more for us. Another theme is that throughout our last study, Matthew kept, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew kept emphasizing authority and teaching. Jesus said over and over, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And Matthew kept saying, whenever the people heard this, they were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. And now we come to the end and he ties it all together in a ribbon. And now you know why his teaching is different because Jesus does have authority. It also gives us this picture of kingship, uh, which is tied to lordship, which goes all the way through Matthew. Matthew begins by tracing Jesus back to King David, showing that he's part of the royal line. And then in the birth narrative, you get the Magi's search for the king of the Jews. And then at the end of his life, Jesus rides into Jerusalem the way that the king is supposed to ride into Jerusalem. But here at the end, the true nature of his kingship is revealed. The king lays down his life for his people. And this is the only God who does that. It's incredibly unique. Now, the idea of Lord is a bit fuzzy for us because we really don't have those anymore. But a Lord is someone who has control. And Jesus, as Lord, has control over everything. Everything operates under his oversight and his control. I love how C.S. Lewis addressed this, and he did this years ago. I think it was during the Second World War. And it, this, it wasn't actually original to C.S. Lewis, but he sort of developed it. Other people had talked about it. But C.S. Lewis says, when you look at Jesus, you really have only three options about who Jesus is. He is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord. And I, I love what Lewis says about this, and it's rather a lengthy quote, but I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and call him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So basically, in a nutshell, what Lewis is saying is Jesus doesn't leave us the options of just thinking about him as being a great moral teacher or an ethical person because Jesus makes claims about himself that either mean that he's lying about what he said or he's delusional. So we're left with Lord. Now, right away, 
Some people said that there is a fallacy in Lewis's argument because what Lewis doesn't account for is that it's possible that Jesus was a legend, that he was someone that was made up by the disciples or made up by somebody in the uh, first century AD. But Lewis actually addresses this too, and he makes two points. One is that the Jews were so thoroughly monotheistic Twice a day, an observant Jew would say the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It is inconceivable to them that there might be more than one God. Now, Jesus isn't another God, but the likelihood of them cooking up some idea that some people would think of as polytheism is basically nil. And then there's whether or not the Gospels sound like legends. And I'll let Lewis speak for himself again here. Now, as a literary historian, I'm perfectly convinced that whatever else the Gospels are, they are not legends. I've read a great deal of legend, and I'm quite clear that they are not the same sort of thing. They're not artistic enough to be legends. From an imaginative point of view, they're clumsy. They don't work up to things properly. And I love that, what Lewis says, because there's all kinds of things that are seemingly contradictory in the Gospels. The Gospels don't tell us an awful lot. We know a whole lot more about Hercules' uh, childhood than we know about Jesus' childhood. There's all kinds of things that are just left up to, we have no idea. So his point is that if this was a legend, they would have done a better job at it. So I like how Lewis point, uh, leaves us with that. These are the three choices you have. Was Jesus a liar? Was he crazy? Or was he the Lord? Next in this passage, Jesus reveals that he has all authority, that he's Lord. He also reveals that he's God. This is the first time we get the Trinitarian formula in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, which becomes the baptismal form, uh, formula. That's what everyone is baptized into. It's the entry right of the church. This is what I believe, that God is three and one and Jesus is God. He also reveals that he's the Savior. By this point in time, Jesus is no longer proclaiming the faith. He's the object of the faith. It's through Jesus that we're saved. And we get this wonderful picture of what salvation looks like in this story because part of salvation is restoring people to their relationship with God. So here you have the 11 disciples, that's 12 minus 1 Judas, and the last time they saw Jesus, was when they had all deserted him and fled. This is in Matthew chapter 16. Peter followed at a distance, but then even Peter ends up abandoning him. So when Jesus rises from the dead, the disciples are nowhere to be seen. In the earlier part of this chapter, chapter 28, Jesus comes to the women who are there who remain faithful and says, tell all those other people, the disciples, to meet me in Galilee. Now, it's 100-ish miles from Jerusalem to close to where people thought that they were gonna be in Galilee, and they're walking, right? So they have plenty of time to think about what kind of reception they're gonna get from Jesus. But they go, and what do you think they were expecting? And then there's this really interesting verse, verse 17. It says, when they finally got to the mountain, Jesus is there, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. What does that mean? Well, doubted is 
probably better translated as they were somewhat hesitant. The word occurs only one other time in the New Testament, and that's in Matthew chapter 14, 31, where, Je where Jesus is out walking on the water, and he invites Peter to come out with him. And Peter starts out doing great, and then Peter does this word. He starts to be somewhat hesitant. He looks around, and he's like, I'm walking on water here, and he loses confidence. So that's part of it. So it's not so much, I think, intellectual doubt as much as it is about maybe being of two minds. I don't know what to think. You know, Jesus looks familiar, but he's somehow different. How is he going to respond to us? One commentator, and uh, I don't know if he's right, but I love how this humanizes the story. So I don't know how you'd feel if all of your friends betrayed you and then they came back to visit you. But Grace, uh, the guy named Grayson thinks that the disciples were worried about how Jesus was going to receive them. So he translates this as, when they saw him, they threw themselves down in submission, though they doubted its effect. <laughs> They're like, he's going to be mad at us. But Jesus' response tells us all we need to know. In verse 18, it says, Jesus comes to them. Only well, doesn't come to them angry. He comes to them to restore them to bring them back into the fold, to give them another chance. He gives them a job, and you don't do that to people that you don't trust. Jesus restores. Jesus is the Savior. And then he's the head of the church. He gives the church its marching orders. Go, make disciples, baptize, teach. And the main verb there is make disciples. Baptizing and teaching is about how you do that. And then the passage ends with, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And this is another element that comes full circle. Because the first title that Jesus has given way back in Matthew chapter 123 was that Jesus would be Emmanuel, God with us. And the last thing that Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew is, I will always be with you. Present with you to lessen your anxiety. You're not alone, not in the lonely moments, not in the difficult moments, not in the great moments. You're never alone. And to help accomplish the task at hand, to go into all the world and make disciples. We can't do it alone, but he has the power and the authority, and with him, we can. And that's how the gospel ends. Jesus claims to have all authority. And most of us claim to be following Jesus. But this is where we can't miss the difference between discipleship and just dabbling with Jesus. Most of us are truly devoted to Jesus. We know that he makes a difference in our lives. We've experienced hope and peace and joy. We know what it's like to feel the weight of our past lifted off of our shoulders. We know the fulfillment of following God, who's interested in the conditions of people's lives, whose heart is with the broken and the oppressed. We love all that about Jesus. And yet, we struggle with getting beyond dabbling with Jesus. We struggle with giving other things authority in our lives. I really believe that the reason that we don't follow Jesus fully is that we don't truly believe that he has what's best for us at heart. We think he'll take our money, we think he'll suck the fun out of our lives, that he'll make us do stuff we don't want to do. But that's just not the way that following Jesus is portrayed in the Bible. 
And it's not what I see in the lives of countless other serious Jesus followers. The biblical picture of the followers of Jesus is people who live with joy and hope and purpose. People who are generous and fulfilled because they have put themselves under the authority of Jesus. And what is Jesus using his authority for? What's Jesus' purpose? What does Jesus want to do? Well, he wants everybody to know him. He wants everyone to be set free from their addictions, from the past, from the sin that can so easily define us. He wants us to be set free from the bondage of the other things that we're chasing. He wants everyone to have a sense of being loved and having value. He wants everyone to have the peace of knowing that God is in control. He wants everyone to have the hope that God has a future for us and that future is good. There's no fun sucking in there. Now sometimes Jesus challenges people in the gospel to give certain things up because they've given authority in their lives to those other things, but they think they can follow him too. And that might look like fun sucking if that's what your deal is. But it's simply the reality that you can only have one authority in your life, not two. And you'll never be able to experience the joy and the peace and the hope that Jesus promises if you're really following someone or something else. I also think we have difficulty fathoming that Jesus is Lord of everything now, even if the wrong political party is in power in your city, your state, or your country, even if things are not turning out the way you thought they would in your life. Jesus is Lord now, not some distant time in the future. This heresy that the Lordship of Jesus only happens at the end, that evil is winning and will continue to win, and we just need to hunker down until Jesus rescues us, that's just not biblical. On the cross, the principalities and the powers of evil were destroyed, past tense. What's going on now is kind of a mop-up operation. Jesus is Lord now, and all creation is moving inexorably toward the day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's the scriptural view, not that everything is going to hell, literally. And so our task is not to give up because it's all going to burn or to take matters into our own hands because this love your neighbor stuff hasn't panned out the way we thought. Our task is to live like Jesus is truly Lord in our lives and in the world now and to share that good news with other people. Now because the rubber tends to meet the road, one of my favorite verses in this passage is the one that says they believed but they doubted. I think it's there because Matthew understands that there can be this fluctuation between worship and indecision, between not quite understanding what's going on, wanting to believe, and still being a little disoriented. I think that can be all of our struggles sometimes. And what the disciples need and what we need is the confidence that Jesus is in fact Lord and is with us always. Now, if all we had was the Gospel of Matthew, we really wouldn't know what happened next because Matthew doesn't tell us. At the beginning of the Gospel, Jesus calls these people to follow him. And then, to put it kindly, mistakes are made along the way. The Gospel ends with Jesus restoring them and calling them to follow him again. That's a beautiful picture 
of what Jesus is all about. And they'll only be able to do that if they decide whether or not they can trust Jesus. And that's the same with us. All authority has been given to Jesus. Will we let him lead in our lives? So let me ask you three questions. What are you afraid would happen if you gave Jesus the authority in your life? Number two, how would it affect your daily life if you truly believed that Jesus was Lord now? And number three, what is one thing you can do this week to let Jesus lead in your life? Hi, thanks for watching. The people of Harbor Covenant Church really want you to know the love that God has for you, want to grow with you in faith, and want to serve alongside you, not only to help others do the same, but also to make our families and our communities better. If that sounds like something that you can get on board with, then like, follow, and drop us a comment in the video. Watch some more videos on our channel or come visit us on Sunday. You can find out more about Harbor Covenant Church at harborcove.church.